Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to Er Garcia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. Before I go any further, I would like to wish everyone a happy new year, and I hope you enjoyed a blessed, joy-filled, and safe Christmas and New Year holiday period. For myself, it's been a busy time, recovering from surgery late last year, negotiating the Christmas period, and then moving house with my family in January. But it's great to be back on air with a new year and further exploration of the world of work, faith, theology, and economics. And so, without further ado, this is episode 13, The Dream Betrayed Part 1, The Dilemma of the Working Class. In this episode, we begin our examination of the book The Dream Betrayed, Religious Challenge of the Working Class by Karen L. Bloomquist. At the time of publication, Bloomquist was Director of Studies for the Commission for Church and Society of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. However, the subject of Bloomquist's book, The Relationship Between the Church and the Working Class, was based directly on her experience in ministering to a number of working-class congregations in America over the course of nearly a decade. And although the book was published in 1990, her observations are as relevant today as they were then. Indeed, they are perhaps even more relevant today than at the time of publication. Bloomquist begins her examination of the relationship between the church and the working class by identifying the principal dilemma facing working people as a class, the failure of the neoliberal dream to fulfil its promise of upward mobility in return for a lifetime of hard labour. She quotes the kind of depressing statistics that have become drearily familiar to most of us in the decades since the 1980s. The shrinking of the middle class with two-thirds of this shrinkage accounted for by people falling into lower socio-economic ranges or even outright poverty, the devastation of entire communities as the increasing fluidity of globalisation facilitates the offshoring of industry to third-world countries with inferior labour standards, the growth of low-wage, de-unionised service and information industry sectors in place of the manufacturing and industrial sectors which once paid higher union-negotiated wages. Bloomquist notes that the one tragic 
irony of this situation is that while the working class feels with full force the bitter reality lurking behind these statistics, so pervasive is the promise of the neoliberal dream that many working people continue to cling to it in desperate hope of economic and social salvation. Yet despite these harsh realities, Bloomquist argues that many predominantly white Christian churches continue to articulate a view of Christian faith that remains untouched by these harsh realities. This despite the growth of concern in many Christian circles about the impact which the changing face of work, technology and industry is having upon vulnerable communities and the environment. In light of this, Bloomquist asks what for her is the key question and premise of her book. How can the church's theological and pastoral understanding be reconceived so that those who are victimised by the failure of the neoliberal dream might be empowered to change their circumstances? Bloomquist notes that in order for such a reconception and its results to be effective, it must relate to the experiences and values that provide the framework of meaning for working-class people. Bloomquist begins by arguing that this task is important precisely because white working-class people especially have been among the staunchest supporters of the neoliberal dream, a support that goes a long way to explaining white working-class resistance to calls for social justice that challenge the very basis of their self-identity and validation. These calls are often seen as antagonistic to white working-class interests or to the working class as a whole, precisely because they prioritise the justice claims of ethnicity and gender over the wounds inflicted by class and economic injustice. Thus it is necessary to examine the dynamics of class injustice in order to move beyond the divisive appeals to social justice that set the white working class against the claims of gender and racial justice. The issue here for Bloomquist is that until the church takes seriously the crisis in working people's spirit by connecting their personal pain to wider structural realities, the potential for solidarity between the white working class and other oppressed and marginalised groups will not be realised. To make this connection, it is necessary to undertake the painful work of exposing the contradiction between the reality of working class people's lives and the failed neoliberal dream to which they cling, embracing them instead in a transformative communal religious vision. This vision must touch on the core longing of working-class people to be treated as human beings, not as objects or the inputs of production or costs in the manufacturing process. Only when the dignity and worth of the working class is prioritised over the social and economic forces by which they are dehumanised will working-class solidarity with other justice claims materialise. For Bloomquist, what this means is that for the gospel to have any meaning in the lives of working-class people, three entrenched dualisms must be overcome. 
The first is a tendency to separate God as active agent from human beings as the passive recipients of God's action, whose own actions often run contrary to those of God. Rather, Bloomquist believes that people need to be viewed as co-subjects with God, a mutual part of God's own activity in the world. Secondly, the tendency to separate the world of spirituality from the world of social, economic and political activism must be resisted. Spirituality does not move people out of the realm of historical reality, but more deeply into it, in order to shape a justice that facilitates human flourishing for all. Third, ministry that deals with the pain of individuals is insufficient. A truly incarnational ministry necessarily leads to questioning and challenging the prevailing social, political and economic order, precisely because that order creates and causes human suffering. In other words, Bloomquist argues that any pastoral ministry is also by definition a prophetic ministry, one in which immersion in the realities of human suffering leads to a prophetic, political and often confrontational ministry that expresses the solidarity of God with the victims of injustice. And the end to which this activity is directed is nothing less than redemption. For society, the economy, the body politic, as well as for individuals. Bloomquist identifies one of the most insidious aspects of the neoliberal dream, its assertion of the classless society. This assertion comes through the cult of aspiration, the desire of working class people to possess the value structures and material comforts of the middle class. Thus many working class people identify as aspirational or even middle class, an identification that necessarily works against the exposure of class injustice as a pervasive social issue. This cult of aspiration similarly helps promote the identification of race and gender as more centrally associated with injustice than class, facilitating the antagonism between the working class and other oppressed groups. But this cult of aspiration also facilitates working class subservience to the neoliberal dream. Hard work, even when that work is debilitating or exploitative, is depicted as the route to both existential and material dignity, and is in any case to be preferred over not working. Thus is born the overriding myth of the neoliberal dream, the belief that I can make it if only I try hard enough. Within this myth lies the seed of, and justification for, the moral judgment of the poor and the unemployed. Those who have achieved social and economic advancement have done so by the sweat of their brow. They deserve their success. Likewise, those who are poor or unemployed are similarly condemned to poverty and social marginalization precisely because that is what they have earned. Were they not so lazy and feckless, had they only tried harder, they might have made something of themselves. This mythology of the meritorious individual 
encourages the working class to participate in the false belief of the sin of those who experience downward mobility, and also serves to distract their attention from the structural factors that cause and promote social and economic injustice. Thus, the dilemma of the working class in modernity is the dilemma of their continued adherence to a dream that has not only failed, but which holds them enthralled despite its contradictions. The dream presents the illusion of a classless society, yet condemns them to the experience of classism in their daily lives. The dream declares that individuals can shape their lives through merit and effort, then victimizes them through social, economic and political forces over which they have little or no control. Bloomquist argues this experience of ideological oppression is reinforced by the experience of work, which for many working class people is a daily reality. This experience of work is one of being controlled and dominated, with little if any capacity to influence the mode, method, hours or outcomes of their labour. Even within work, the contradiction of the neoliberal dream persists. Those who find themselves moving upward within the ranks of an organisation discover that instead of being liberated, they are subject to insidious control mechanisms that nonetheless leave them feeling just as powerless. The command and control economy within which modernity's construction of work operates is itself the product of capitalism's evolution from a competitive system of small entrepreneurs into a monopoly system in which the ownership of the means of production is concentrated into the hands of a small class of wealthy capital owners, investors and executives. This concentration has facilitated the inordinate control over every aspect of working life which multinational and even small national and often subsidiary corporations exercise over the lives of their employees. This control is further legitimised by the formal knowledge and education of those holding managerial roles. They are the authorities who reveal to workers when, how and why things happen. Yet even managers find themselves in an ambiguous position. They represent the corporation's interest to the workers, but lack the ultimate control exercised by senior executives and directors. This control is further underpinned by the increasingly casualized and insecure nature of work, in which human labour is viewed merely as a commodity within an insecure, low-paid, high-turnover environment. Of course, in keeping with the innate dualism of the neoliberal dream, this control is not presented in such bland terms. Rather, workers are promised the ability to exercise control through flexibility, to arrange things so that their working life better balances the needs and commitments of their private life. But this rarely turns out to be the case. Rather, the employer exercises their control over the workforce to arrange work schedules and processes that suit their needs, utilising the whip hand of job loss 
and economic poverty to enforce their will. Ironically, the move toward casualization in the late 20th and early 21st centuries runs counter to the current of bureaucratic control which characterized industrialized work for much of the 20th century. This system of control sought to regularize the work experience by setting out formal rules and structures for performance and quality standards in return for which rewards and incentives would be provided. Thus, the organization sought to reconcile the workforce to the corporation's power, goals and values by breaking down the us-versus-them division of traditional class conflict. The tragic irony is that having been enculturated within this system of control, many workers are doubly traumatised by the embrace of one-sided flexibility which neoliberalism espouses. Not only do they suffer the social and economic distress of losing their job when a manufacturing plant is moved offshore, or once secure high-paying unionised jobs are replaced with low-wage, insecure, casualised employment, they also suffer a profound sense of existential betrayal that annihilates their previously inviolate sense of self and place in the world. Having once been assured of making it within the framework of rules which their experience had taught them constituted the real world, these workers are plunged into a new environment of uncertainty and despair in which old certainties disappear and the new rules are incomprehensible. Bloomquist notes that within the disjunction caused by this betrayal lies the opportunity for creating solidarity between the working class and other oppressed groups in society. However, this solidarity can be only slowly built up precisely because the ideological underpinnings of bureaucratic control are deeply entrenched within working class culture. Even in the face of betrayal, this entrenchment has become so generalised that it fosters a sense of powerlessness that accommodates oppression and represses any understanding of work's articulation of who and what human beings are meant to be. The biblical understanding of work, however, is that work should express who and whose we are. Work sustains us not just by meeting our physical needs, but because the activity of work is foundational to who we are as co-creators with God and co-participants in God's activity in the world. Tragically, the working class in the industrial and post-industrial worlds are so conditioned to understand their experience of work as a reflection of what they as individuals have done or failed to do, and thus deserve in terms of material well-being and social standing, that not only is the biblical vision of the inherent dignity in and through work lost, but the working class in many cases blames itself for outcomes that are the result of systemic injustice. Embedded within this tendency toward self-blame is an understanding of salvation as escape from material want and social marginalization. The good life flows from hard work and manifests itself in the capacity to purchase consumer goods. 
conspicuous consumption compensates for the meaninglessness and powerlessness experienced within the realm of work and carries with it the cachet of upward social mobility. However, consumption binds one more firmly to waged labour in order to keep up appearances and solve existential hurts. This binding in turn leaves one less available to personal and family commitments, resulting in an internalised guilt conscious of the dehumanisation inherent in the diminution of social and interpersonal contact, but at a loss to access any effective exit strategies. The quest for salvation becomes a vicious cycle leading to despair. And even if one's own children make it, achieve the dream of social mobility and financial security for which one sacrificed oneself, the result can still be a sense of betrayal or alienation. Children who have benefited from their parents' sacrifice acquire different values and lifestyles and develop a different social consciousness and class orientation. Children who make it can become strangers to their working-class parents, no longer the agents through which redemption of their sacrifice is possible. Against this cycle of betrayal and desperate clinging to the very dream by which they are betrayed, Bloomquist asks, How can the working class break out of the cycle of despair created by the bankrupt, broken promises of neoliberalism? How can the working class see themselves as active agents in history rather than the passive recipients of whatever outcomes the powers that be are prepared to dole out? The answers to these questions form the subject of the rest of Bloomquist's book and the object of our exploration in the next episode of Ergasia. And so we have come to the conclusion of another episode of Argasia. May I once again take this opportunity to wish you all a happy new year, to thank you for your ongoing support, and to say how much I look forward to sharing the journey ahead with you. To leave your thoughts about this podcast, or to offer any ideas for future subjects, please go to the webpage at www.ergasia.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. In the meantime, I'm your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. You have been listening to Ergasia a podcast of faith, work, theology and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.